good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today we're here on a cold morning um, with distinguished professor Leslie Hughes at Macquarie University. She's an ecologist in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Pro Vice Chancellor of Research Integrity and Development. She has special expertise in the impacts of climate change on biodiversity, which is one of the reasons I asked to speak with her today, because um, I think that's really interesting and has a lot of impacts for public health, and there's a lot of lessons we can learn from her work. Um, she's a former federal climate commissioner and she's also a director of um, the World Wildlife Fund Australia and she's had quite a history of being a, has a reputation as an influencer and policy changer and so really like to talk today a bit about what we can learn in public health about how to influence and engage stakeholders such as the public um, and policy makers. Welcome Leslie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so because this is a little bit different today maybe you could start by explaining to people exactly what an ecologist does. Well, an ecologist is somebody that's interested in studying the interactions between plants, animals and the environment. Um, and I did a science degree uh, majoring in ecology, but came to Macquarie later on to do my PhD. Yeah. And then from there, so what made you interested particularly in the effects of climate change um, in that field? Well, I did my PhD on something completely different, which was on seed dispersal by ants. So okay. I spent about four years following ants around the bush. And I like ants, but I think, you know, I got a bit sick of that. Yeah. So I was casting around for a project to write uh, a postdoctoral application for. And my then PhD supervisor, and this was back sort of 1989, 1990, said, well, maybe you should think about doing something on climate change. And it was really the first time I'd even thought about climate change. Um, in those days, it was actually relatively easy to get on top of pretty much the entire global literature about climate change, something wow. we couldn't do now. Really? <laughs> um, so, you know, climate change in around the early 90s was um, a topic of mostly academic interest. It certainly wasn't um, a, a topic that the public were particularly aware of or concerned about. Um, but the more I started to read about it, um, so I went in it, into it really for a, quite a practical reason that I thought maybe have more chance of getting a job and, and a postdoctoral fellowship in that area than in keeping on doing the behavioural ecology sort of studies that I've been doing. So, But the more you read about climate change and the more you get into it, the more I did realise at the time that you know this was a really important thing. Though back then it was really an issue that most people thought of as something rather a long way away. Yeah. Um, you know, of more intellectual and academic interest than real practical interest. And of course, um, 27 years later now, uh, it's quite different. Yeah, so what's it been like watching that change over time and how did that sort of happen? Well, it accelerated. I, I would say it was fairly slow to begin with. Yeah. Um, I was interest, got interested in the impacts of climate change on on plants and animals in Australia and, and still am and, and the bulk of my research has been on that and probably for about the first 10 years maybe 15 years that was still very much a, just an academic research interest for me and for many other people. Yeah. I remember back in about 2002 uh, a colleague of mine and I organised what I still think was the first workshop mini conference in Australia on biodiversity and climate change. Wow. And we basically, between us, asked everybody into the room that was working in that area. Yeah. And there was maybe 20 people. Um, and we wrote a report from that. Um, we then got involved in 
um, writing some government reports on, on climate change and biodiversity. And sort of one thing led to another. So, you know, things started to become more publicly available. The public started to get interested in climate change. Uh, some politicians started to get interested in climate change and, and gradually more and more scientists. But, yeah. but even in the year 2000, I remember going to a conference of the Ecological Society of Australia, of which I'm a member, and they have an annual conference. And in the year 2000, I gave a talk about climate change at that conference in the plenary, and I was the only person in the entire conference talking about climate change. Wow. So that's not that long ago. Yeah, it's really not. Um, now, when you go to an Ecological Society of Australia meeting, you know, two-thirds of the talks will mention climate change. Yeah. So there's been just a huge upswing in interest. And a lot of that is just... Um, a natural progression but a lot of it is because we can now see climate change in front of our faces you know we're experiencing it and we see the impacts all around us so it's no longer a future problem it's really a now problem yeah and what do you think some of those biggest I've talked to some other um, of the people I've interviewed about how in health crises they're really something we don't want to experience but a lot of actual I guess good comes out of it because it really does push that change what would mm-hmm. you say some of the biggest changes that we've seen in the climate have really made that push what, what's worrying people the most well from from a biologist perspective um, it's species extinction that, yeah. that worries the most because that that is forever but just in the last year or two you know we've seen the really catastrophic impacts on the Great Barrier Reef for example yeah. and there's there's really nothing more clear and obvious in the natural world of a climate change impact than that you know yeah. you see it in front of your face there's there's no denying or, or you can't close your eyes to it so so that's those sort of whole ecosystem changes yeah um of a of a natural icon that's really irreplaceable that they're the things that really worry people in the natural world but look increasingly i think i think one of the communication problems we've had about climate change is that it's and it still is portrayed largely as an environmental problem only yeah and it is an environmental problem but it's not only an environmental problem you know it is as we'll talk shortly a problem for human health it's a problem for our economy it's a problem for our infrastructure it's a problem for national and global security. So I think the broad scale of impacts and consequences of climate change, it's been slow to get that message out, but I think it's happening more and more now. But nonetheless, still, you see, for example, in governments that climate policy is generally run from the Department of the Environment by the Environment Minister. Mm. That's quite typical, as if the environment, the natural world, is the only thing affected. But human sectors are as affected by climate directly and indirectly by the impacts on the environment um, more and more. Uh, so maybe now we'll touch on how um, the climate really um, affects all aspects um, of life. You were talking about economic and health. Yeah. I'd be really interested to hear about yeah. that. Well, humans, like any other species, have to live, prefer to live in a fairly stable environment. Um, if we deal with health, well, climate is already affecting people's health. Um, and will continue to do so. So if I take just what's happened in the Australian climate, which which is consistent with um, what's been happening globally, one of the things that's happening is that as average temperatures increase, uh, so have the incidence of extreme events. So by extreme events, I mean things like extreme hot days, heat waves, yeah. uh, bushfires, tropical cyclones, storms, storm surges, uh, 
flooding events, all of those droughts, all of those sorts of mm. things. So as we as an average increases, um, an average is just really a shorthand, um, but extreme events are increasing both in intensity and frequency, and they're the things that have impacts. So one of the the most devastating impacts is the impacts of extreme heat. So yeah. for example, in 2003, um, an extreme uh, heat wave in Europe um, that lasted about three weeks in summer uh, killed is estimated to have killed about 70,000 people. Wow. Um, one in 2010 in Russia killed 56,000 people. You know, these are just devastating. Yeah, impacts. big numbers. Even here in Australia, and luckily we haven't suffered quite that badly, heat waves kill more people than any other extreme climate or natural hazard. Yeah. Um, heat waves, they've been termed the silent killer because you don't see a heat wave, really. It's not like seeing the aftermath of a storm or a flood or a bushfire which leaves a scar on the landscape and there's a sort of violence associated with those sorts of events. Rather heat waves just happen and people die. Um, so for exa- as an example, in um, the Black Saturday time in, in um, February 2009 in Victoria, over nearly 200 people died in the Black Saturday bushfires. You know, it was a national tragedy, there was a huge amount of attention yeah. on that. Now, the week before that, there'd been a heat wave in southeastern Australia, and double that number of people died from heat related conditions. But that didn't get reported yeah. because, you know, a lot of those people were elderly, they might have had existing, pre existing kidney or, or respiratory or heart disease, and they just sort of died in isolated incidents. Mm. It's when you put all that together from an epi- epidemiological sense that you realise there was a huge spike associated with that heat wave in mortality. So we, you know, we had a national inquiry, a Victorian inquiry rather, about Black Saturday um, and a huge amount of attention, but not nearly the same amount of attention on the impacts of that particular heat wave. So heat waves in Australia really are um, absolutely central to how we deal with the climate change issue from a health perspective. Yeah, that's so interesting and so sad because, um, yeah, it, I understand what you're saying when you say it's silent because it's not something that I've really thought a lot about. I've known mm. it's an issue. So that's really mm. interesting. And I guess that maybe leads on to um, the other thing that I wanted to discuss was how do we get the message out there more? Like how do you raise people's awareness that mm. that's an issue and how do you get policymakers involved? Because I know you've mm. um, done a lot of work mm. on how do we actually get this message to people? Yeah, look, I think um, if there's one thing I've learned and, and one of the things I do in my outside life is work, uh, as you said, um, I was a commissioner with the uh, Federal Climate Commission. Yeah. And when we were on the commission, we travelled all over Australia doing town hall meetings. Um, basically, you know, a group of us sitting up on stage, taking, doing a little presentation and then taking questions from the audience. We went all over the place, a lot of capital cities, lots of regional centres, um, just to try to communicate better to people about climate change. And one of the things I learned during that time was that just talking about things like the Great Barrier Reef even, or polar bears, or, or that sort of thing, um, is a sort of an intellectually distant thing. For most people and so but when you talk about impacts in the local area yeah. um, and especially impacts on their families their own health potentially their future children and grandchildren's health that's when people actually um, really start to understand 
So I might ask, um, I have seen um, Leslie present before and you show a really um, stunning graph where you sort of put up the numbers in, um, of increasing temperature over time, um, yeah. but then you've put in people's um, lifespan in their children's yeah. lifespans. So what I'm asking, if it's okay with you, would be maybe we could put that on the website sure. or on Twitter yeah. after this so people yeah. could have a look. So the, it was a graph that I, I did when I was on the Climate Commission as a bit of an experiment. So. Um, it was about our second or third town hall meeting. It was up in North Queensland. I'm a scientist, so graphs, you know, I love graphs. And, you know, graphs can be, for me, a very powerful depiction of, of change. But I know that having done lots of talks to the public, when you put up a graph like the one I showed, even though to me it's very stunning and very scary in and of itself, puts a lot of people off. There's a lot of people out there that really don't want to look at a graph. They're not interested. They don't understand a two-dimensional depiction, yeah. of, no matter how obvious it might look to me. So I experimented um, just fiddling around actually backstage um, before we went out on stage. And I thought, well, what if I put my own lifespan on there, um, you know, projected lifespan, um, and put it at, at, at the temperature that's the average that I will experience over my life? compared to pre-industrial times, um, and then put my children's potential. I have two um, children who are now in their early 20s, their lifespan, and then, you know, if my kids have kids when they're about 30, yeah. their lifespan, they will live into the next century. So it, it immediately brings the next century much closer yeah. to home. So I put up this graph with this um, climate trends for the future under different scenarios with my projected lifespan, my children's, and my unborn grandchildren. And it, it did really have quite a big impact because it, it made the science and that sort of two-dimensional mm. data, which a lot of people find pretty boring, Yeah, it actually brought it home. Yeah, I, th I think that's something we could learn a lot more about in public health. I'm an epidemiologist, I love mm -hmm. graphs, so it's not something I've really thought about before. Most importantly, what, what can people do in their own lives mm -hmm. um, that can help? Like, I know myself, I consider it a big issue. Mm -hmm. What can I do every day that might help? Mm -hmm. Can I advocate? Can I stop mm -hmm. using plastic? You can do lots and lots and lots of things. Excellent. There's no single thing yeah. that any of us can do. So if we go, you know, climate change is a very large and complex issue, and it has to be tackled at a personal level, at a community level, at a national level, and international level. Now, yeah. obviously... Um, there are lots of international organisations involved in um, things like the Paris Climate Agreement, yeah. which is really shaping a lot of the international and national action on things like renewable energy, which is fantastic. But if we come back to the individual level, I think there's uh, lots of things we can do. We can think, obviously, about our own personal carbon footprint, you mm -hmm. know, um, how we produce the energy in our homes, how we um, you know, transport ourselves from yeah. place to place, um, what we eat. Um, what we waste, you know, everything from not buying bottled water yeah. um, to maybe reducing meat consumption. I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I have consciously reduced my meat consumption because uh, meat has a very carbon, uh, large carbon footprint. Yeah. Um, you know, using public transport, putting solar panels on your house, um, maybe if you can afford it, a battery. If you can afford an electric car running yeah. off those, you know, and those things are getting much cheaper and much more doable yeah. um, very, very rapidly, which is what does give us all a bit of hope. That's fantastic. But even more importantly than all of those personal things, um, every one of us over 18 has a vote. Yeah. If politicians in this or any other country knew that climate change policy was the number one reason determining somebody's vote, 
we would see some very, very rapid better policy here and, and in many other countries. So your vote is very powerful, but not just your vote, it's about communicating to your politicians that that will be what will determine your vote. Similarly, where your money is, you know, where's, where is your money, where is your superannuation? Um, you know, I, my superannuation, for example, um, is in a fund that doesn't invest in fossil fuels and just like it doesn't invest in guns or tobacco yeah. either. So those things generally only take phone calls, which are pretty cheap. Yeah, I've um, never thought of that. I'm, I've got some phone calls to make today, I yeah. think. So the, there's, there's what you do with your vote, what you do with your money, money talks, what you do with your personal life, who you talk to about things, yeah. um, get informed. I mean, the my major... Um, Outside university activity these days is as a councillor with the Climate Council, which was formed after the Climate Commission was abolished by the Abbott government. Just go to the Climate Council Facebook page or to our website. Um, There is just a huge amount of resources there, Um, reports, videos, shareable, everything. Everything's copyright free, but everybody can contribute to the solution. Excellent. That you've actually preempted my next question, which was resources. (laughs) So that's fantastic. Is there anyone you particularly look up to, um, your heroes or you know mm-hmm. people that you're working with? Um, quite a few. One of them's here at the moment in Australia, and that's Al Gore. Uh, I was just listening to him this morning and last night, um, and he's got a sequel to his movie. Um, so the original movie, An Inconvenient Truth, had a yeah. huge impact in yeah. 2006. Um, it came out in the same year as the Stern, the UK Stern Report, and together those two things really raised the the temperature, if you'll excuse the pun on climate change. Um, And he's brought out a sequel now that I haven't seen yet called An Inconvenient Sequel, and he's here promoting that. So, um, yeah, Al Gore is a hero because he's just had huge influence. A very early hero is a guy called James Hansen, who far fewer people will have heard of. Um, He is well known in the climate science space. He testified to Congress in 1988 about the impact of climate change and the danger it posed. And if you go back and read his speech, it could have been written today. You know, um, he's still going strong. He um, has become a much more um, more of an advocate and a lobbyist than perhaps a scientist. Um, gets arrested every now and then, <laughs> protesting. But um, I went to hear him speak at um, the Paris Climate Summit because he's another hero. Um, and look, one of my uh, local heroes is actually the CEO of the Climate Council. is a woman called Amanda McKenzie. Um, Amanda, with her friend Anna Rose, started the Australian Youth Climate Coalition together. Um, It's now got well over 100,000 members of young people in Australia. Um, Amanda and Anna are both extraordinary um, women, um, the most passionate, smart advocates of climate change you could ever, climate change action I should say, ever hope to meet. Um, and uh, I, every time I'm good friends with Amanda and, and Anna, and every time I'm with them, I'm struck again by the fact that single individuals can make such an impact. You know, a lot of people get frustrated about climate change as an issue because it seems so big and scary and global. Mm. And what can I, as an individual, do? And and often people then give up. But every time somebody says, well, I can't do anything, I'm just an individual, I say, well, look at what Amanda, somebody like Amanda McKenzie did, um, you know, with one other person, 
started out with the two of them, built a movement um, of now 100,000 plus yeah. uh, young people. Um, and then she was our communications advisor on the Climate Commission. When we knew we were going to get sacked, um, she resigned, wrote a business case for the Climate Council. Um, we got it up and um, she's been running it ever since. So she's my local hero. That's fantastic. So one of my other questions was, um, what do you do with people that are climate change deniers? How do you work with people who don't who question the science? Mm. Very short answer to that. I ignore them. Okay. Um, the, the, the hardcore denialists are a very small portion of the population, you know, maybe six, seven, eight percent. Yeah. They do tend to be loud and unfortunately at the moment still tend to be uh, have a voice in certain quite powerful sections of our community. They tend to be older white men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but look, the, the science is so clear and the evidence is so spectacular that anybody that denies the impact of climate, denies that humans are affecting the climate and denies the impacts and the seriousness of that situation is either really stupid or so ideologically hidebound that no amount of facts or reasoning or rationality is going to change their mind. So considering we've all got limited time, um, and I you know, like to devote as much time as I can to actually communicating with people who want to understand, why would I spend my time yeah. talking to a brick wall? So you spend your time to talk to the people that you can actually influence? Yeah, look, when, when we started on the commission, um, you know, we were given the stats on you know, who believes what in yeah. Australia. You know, okay, there might be 7% that... that don't believe in climate change, some people never thought about it, don't care. And and the rest of the population was sort of divided into two camps. People that absolutely understood and believed that um, human activities were changing the climate were concerned about it. And another fairly substantial group um, that said, yes, the climate's changing, but I'm not quite convinced that it's human activity. So those were the sort of the main groups. When I started on the Climate Commission, I really felt that my aim, I, I never worried about skeptics much, but I really wanted to sort of turn that group of the, the people that really thought it was natural variability mm. into people that understood the role of human activity. And so I spent you know, a couple of years on the commission going around talking to those groups and, and often would hear a kind of a semi-criticism from people saying, oh, well, you're just preaching to the converted. After doing all this stuff pretty solidly for a couple of years, I actually came to the conclusion that preaching to the converted was exactly what I needed to do because it's actually the converted that are going to take action. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense because obviously it's something I'm concerned about as well when I you know, have been trying to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's things that you've talked about today that I just haven't thought about, so that makes complete sense to me. Uh, so I have two final questions, if that's sure. okay. So the first is, what keeps you going? It seems you have a very hopeful outlook. Is that why you keep going? You really think we can beat this? Um, Look, it depends on the day as to how hopeful I feel. But look, I think we have to believe there is hope or we give up. So um, a quote that I'm very fond of saying is from um, an Italian Marxist politician from about 150 years ago, um, Antonio Gramsci, who wasn't talking about climate change, but was talking about some other issue. And he said it's a struggle between the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. 
And to me, that really sums it up. You know, if you only look at the climate facts, and there are an awful lot of them, um, it's really easy to get depressed yeah. and pessimistic. The problem is that that is very disempowering. Mm. And if you focus on the catastrophe, if you focus on the disaster, it's like focusing on your own death. Mm. You know, if you focus on your own death too much, well, you don't live your life. Mm. Um, so I think we have to corral those thoughts into a part of our brain with a big fence around them and use the rest of our brain and the rest of our energy to live in hope. Um, because unless we do that, um, then we might as well give up. Oh, I think that's amazing. I found that quite inspiring. I needed that this morning. <laughs> um, one last question. Um, do you have any books that inspire you or make you think differently about the world? Or podcasts oh, or yeah, websites? Look, going back, 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 back to when I first started getting interested in climate change and going back to what we first started talking about, which is getting interested in it from a biodiversity and an ecosystem point of view, I guess the, the one paper that, that shaped my perception and still does in the, the environmental space is a, a paper written by a guy called jo uh, Robert Peters and Joan Darling published in 1985 in the journal Bioscience, which pointed out the concept that conservation basically would have to change pointed out back in 1985 the implications of climate change for the protected area system, for example. Um, more recently, I have to confess, I don't. there's a lot of books around about climate change, and I tend not to read them. I mean, I live, eat and breathe climate change mm. in my working life and a lot of it in my personal life. Um, but when I want to relax, I don't want to read about climate change. <laughs> I tend to read, you know, crappy crime thrillers and things like that, um, or cookbooks or things, you know, other things that kind of you need to keep your sanity by um, having some contrasts in your life. And what's your favourite cookbook at the moment? Um, oh, that's a good question. I'm quite into the Ottolenghi's at the moment, Yotam so I've been cooking a lot out of book called Jerusalem and a book called Plenty. Um, as I said before, I'm trying to eat less meat, so um, I've got a couple of really great um, vegetarian cookbooks. One's called, one's called Plenty, one's called Enjoy, that um, I'm working my way through. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a cookbook collector. <laughs> um, I have way more cookbooks and recipes than I could ever hope to cook in 10,000 lifetimes, but um, I still keep yeah, we obviously get enjoyment from it. I'm going to look up those vegetarian ones because my partner and I are trying to cut down on meat as well. So yeah. thank you so much for your time today. This has just my been pleasure. fantastic. I've learned so much about climate change, but also about life. <laughs> Quite a few words of wisdom in there. Um, so, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Emily. Um, and thank you for listening to Stories in Public Health. We'll talk to you next time.